this is the Pink Smoke Podcast. My name is John Cribbs. I'm the co-host with my friend Christopher Funderburg. Hello, Chris. Hi, John. Lovely to see you. It's and nice to see you as always. Very excited to get into this episode. We are doing a book episode, uh, first one in a while, actually. It's so exciting. I can't contain my excitement today from 20 different directions. <laughs> I know. We've had to deal with all this excitement coming at me from all different directions. The but, positive uh, energy has overwhelmed you. It has. It's 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 overwhelming. Uh, we're always excited because to have recurring guest Wendy Mays join us to talk about a book. Hi, Wendy. How's it going? I'm Peachy. How are you? Really? We didn't ruin your month with this book? <laughs> when you texted me and you were like, I just read the first story and I'm crying. And I was like... <laughs> why did we ask Wendy to read this? Like, as soon as you said that, I my thought was like, why did we do this? Why I will tell you exactly good... why we did this, Chris. <laughs> because we've had Wendy on to talk about Pet Cemetery by Stephen King. We've had her on to talk about Feral by Burton Ruscha. A lot of cat casualties in those books, and I felt bad about that. I want oh. to give Wendy a collection where the animals come out on top. And more yeah, often sometimes. than not, in this collection, they do. Well, if you, if you come down to it, it comes up to something like 12 to 3 in the end. Did you paper. calculate it? Well, well I didn't it count seems several like chickens who die in a fire. Individual hamster casualties. <laughs> yeah, that hamster casualties. But that's okay. Yeah, the I think I cried maybe twice. Two stories made me cry, I think. I, Before the, you tell yes. us which ones, let me just throw out what we're going to be talking about. It's going to be, of course, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Animal Lovers Book of Beastly Murder by the great Patricia Highsmith. We've uh, covered uh, two different Highsmith books in the past. We've done Deep Water and uh, The Sweet Sickness, and we have a new article by our own Chris Funderburg, "The Criminal in the Text: A Suspension of Mercy," her 1965 novel, which you can read on the Pink Smoke right now if you want to. Well, not right now. You listen to this episode, but afterwards. Uh, we love Highsmith. And this book, I uh, should just mention, it falls uh, in the mid-70s, 1975 is when it was collected. And so we're kind of past her golden age. Uh, she's kind of really deep into the Ripley ad at this point. This came out um, right after Ripley's game. So she's right in the middle of doing the Ripley books. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting place for her. She had always kind of threatened... It's when she's gotten weird. Like this is the era after Suspension of Mercy. That book is like her saying like, what the hell am I doing? And she starts to get more experimental than she's ever been. Yeah, and she had always threatened to stop writing about people and only write about animals. And I guess this is sort of her making good on that. Uh, although, of course, there are people in this uh, this collection as well. But the, uh, the 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 theme of the book is animals who commit murder for some reason or another, and kind of exploring the various motives, I guess, that they would have. Uh, other than it making you sad, Wendy, what was your impression of the kind of the whole collection? Um, I mean, I liked it overall. I thought all of them, I like that sometimes you got uh, the perspective of the animal. Like it really varied from like either just like this animal happened to be there and like, oopsie, you did something wrong and now you fucked up and you're dead. Like it went from like <laughs> that to like, you know, like, or like it went into the mindset of the animal being like, no, I'm not playing this game with you anymore, human. Like time's up. I'm going to get back. You did something to me. Now I'm going to do something to you. Orchestrated or just, homicide. Yeah, straight up homicide. And like, or, you know, I, I kind of like the funny, like short, weird short story that wasn't necessarily about death, but like 
like the cockroach one that just yeah. like it was That's just her like unbridled expression of her hatred of hippies yeah the cockroach <laughs> yes, stories that's just so. about like I fucking hate young people is basically all that story is. Yeah, it's like, oh, New York has gone downhill so far. <laughs> Henry it's James just, used to stay in this Greenwich hotel. Village. Yeah. I hope yeah. you agree. Well, that's top, what I, that's what I was thinking when reading that one is you work so close to Washington <laughs> Square Park. Like, it's about hating you, Wendy, that story. I, you didn't feel like no. the cockroach. In Greenwich Village, Washington Square Park in the 1970s is like a three, you know, know. a 180 from what Greenwich Village is now. <laughs> she would love it now. Would you, Although would you I agree? Did, when I was reading that short story was um, at work, a cockroach I had to kill. <laughs> and then that night at Trivia randomly a cockroach came out and i had to kill it while in the middle of doing trivia and That's then right. again today i was just like oh my god they know that i read this story and now they're all coming after me <laughs> what is happening with the cockroaches of the world you <laughs> clearly are sympathy. just super classy they're clearly just <laughs> yeah. coming to the classiest place they can find yeah like and now cockroach. everybody thinks i'm a trash trash bird, trash <laughs> bird? that's a thing <laughs> i'm grouch Awesome. Uh, I, I don't know if but you agree I, wait, with me this that is it's a complete tough. total aside but when I went I had a meeting with the the Sesame Street people once and I went to like their offices where it has a bunch of like the original puppets and they have like in a glass case the original Oscar the Grouch first puppet ever and you will be thrilled to hear it is fucking filthy it is actually <laughs> a disgustingly dirty old puppet and I was like this is wonderful that this is genuinely gross Oh, I'm sure they all, I mean, the ones at the, the Museum of Moving Images, like yeah. those guys are old and crusty and stuff like that. Yeah. And you're like, you just have to use them until you wear them out, I guess. These were, this was actually like dusty. It had that like, you oh. know, that look of like when you put down a piece of tape and pull it up and everything yeah. gets stuck to it, like everything around it, like his garbage can was like <laughs> an authentic New York City 70s garbage can too. It wasn't like some prop that was, or... It was some prop, I'm well, sure, if yeah. I could have inspected it. But I could see some of these stories being adapted by the Muppets, like, you know, a Ralph-type <laughs> Muppet, you know, playing uh, Baron, the dog, and things like yes. that. Yes. That would definitely 100%. happen. <laughs> um, oh, that'd be great. Let's. So what's the format of the episode, John? This time, what we're going to do is, rather than discuss the 13 stories in the book, each one of us uh, picked a favorite one or one we wanted to talk about to be illustrative of the book on the whole to discuss in depth. And then obviously we're going to reference the other stories and talk about them. But what we're going to do is each, every time we do a book, we do a, an aperitif pairing and a dessert pairing to go with the book. We pick some artwork to uh, share, to suggest that you watch, uh, listen to, see, read before you read the book, and then a dessert pairing to take you out of it to read and just think about afterwards. And uh, so we'll do the aperitif pairings first. We'll each pick our individual uh, stories to talk about, and then we'll do the dessert pairings uh, with, with our book pairings each time. Did I explain that coherently? If not, listen, and we'll explain itself over the course of the episode. Everything will become clear. Yes, it all will be <laughs> revealed. I would say that just in a general way, we've, we described it, but these stories are, with the exception of the cockroach one, we just uh, 
uh, I think it's called a very respectable cockroach. Yeah. Is that the name of that one? I think so. Yeah. It's uh, they're all very similar stories where basically you have an animal that encounters a really shitty human and murder results. Uh, normally, in most of them, it's the crappy human who gets it, who gets killed by the animal either directly or indirectly, sort of uh, almost um, a, a lot of the times it's a play on some way on the uh, shitty things they're doing. They sort of get their comeuppance as a direct result of their bad behavior towards the animals in some way but they're, they're very, very similar throughout it. So um, and this book has been called out too by people by saying this is not so much, even though it's called the animal lover's book, it's not so much a reflection of her love of animals as it is her misanthropy and just kind of yes. hatred of humanity and their treatment of animals and everyone getting their comeuppance in this book, sort of a reflection of uh, what she thinks, you know, people have come into them in the first place. Yes, it is. It is. She's always been a very darkly misanthropic human being. And this is, this is, I would say, one of her most undistilled uh, expressions of negativity. It's not quite as, as much as Edith's diary or little tales of misogyny, but it's, it's pretty close. It's in the neighborhood uh, of those, of those books. So would we like to do our aperitif pairings to go with it? Wendy? As our guest, you can go first if you'd like. Um, sure, I will go first. So I was trying to think of something that would maybe go along with this. And then I remembered I have these two books, which are, oh. so, which I know I'm saying that on a podcast, but so one is um, The Fables of Aesop. Is that how you say it? Aesop, right? That's how yeah, I've Aesop's always fables. It. Yeah. yeah, and then um, and then the um, selected fables that like Jean de La Fontaine put together. Mm -hmm. So and I, both of them are artwork by Alexander Calder. But um, I thought there's so many fables that have like an animal kind of story element to them, and you know just kind of like all of her stories. Like the end game is like make sure you treat your animals nice. Like <laughs> kind of also have that thing. So Don't thought, drive flocks of them insane. Yes, exactly. So I thought reading some like animal fables would kind of go well with. I think that's a brilliant pairing. I wouldn't have thought to describe these as fable-ish. And then as soon as you say it, it's like, oh, obviously that's what she's playing on as well. Yeah, because like a lot of the stories also were like the humans were trying to better themselves or, you know, use these animals for some kind of accomplishment. And you're just like, nom, 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 don't get over your head. Just <laughs> be with yourself and be okay with that. <laughs> I definitely had that fable vibe. I'm reading the Odyssey with my kids and I kept thinking about Odysseus's dog kid. waiting for him on Ithaca, you know, just uh, oh. waiting for him to return home that old sad story. And I you know definitely felt that sort of same sort of sympathy towards the four legged, you know, in these, uh, and, and multi-legged that we see in this book. So that's an excellent pairing. Thank you. Chris, what do you got? Uh, I was thinking these books to, to get you into the mindset of how these books are different and sort of where they're coming from. 
the there's all of that genre of the sort of when animals attack people that come in the wake of jaws you know that it becomes a genre the sort of animal attack films that follow after like the great frogs that i once watched with wendy mays at at videology hosted by wendy mays but i was thinking there's one that i really like which i think is the best of all of those sort of animal attack movies by a wide margin, uh, which is of unknown origin by George P. Cosmatos starring Peter Weller. I think this Classic. is a genuinely great movie, but it also is a bridge between a movie like Jaws where Jaws is fundamentally not a character in that movie. He's something that shows up to kill people and then disappears. And that's how the animals are treated in a lot of these films is sort of an unseen force that shows up a bit like Jason Voorhees or Freddy. In Of Unknown Origin, Peter Weller's character gets really into the psychology of rats and what rats are sort of as a culture, as a moral experience, what it means to be a rat and live like a rat and starts to uh, not only respect them, but identify with them and understand that humanity can't defeat the rat in some way, that this is one of the animals that humanity would really love to be rid of, and they can't, that in some way the rats are or more powerful than people. They're unstoppable in some ways. And I think thinking about that sort of uh, the cliche of the animal attack genre that's sort of uh, burgeoning right around the same time this book is written. Uh, and uh, then thinking about Of Unknown Origin, it's a, it's a great way to sort of get your mind right for what you're gonna get with these stories. Also to see how it subverts all of those perspectives in some way. You know, I was also thinking about pairing it with White Dog, the Samuel Fuller movie, which is another movie that's really about trying to understand an animal, you know, from a moral perspective in some way. And I think that of unknown origin, uh, of all the like Jaws knockoffs, is the one most concerned with what is the 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 culture of a rat? What is the culture of an animal? What is the moral space of an animal? You know, uh, that this book is definitely concerned with, you know, that if it, you take animals as being fundamentally amoral, what does it mean to insert them into not immoral, but not uh, behaving according to human morality and then insert them into crime stories, you know, and interpret their behaviors according to human behaviors, uh, I think is what this book is all about. It's so weird. I have to point out another coincidence here. I mentioned that, you know, I'm reading the Odyssey with my kids. What we're also doing is watching Shelley Duvall's fairy tale theater. Oh, and oh, we just so watched <clears throat> the dancing princesses with Peter Weller. So we're a fable with Peter Weller, kind of your guys, uh, aperitifs <laughs> mixed together. That's amazing. Oh, I loved those as a kid. They're, They're so, so good. good. They're excellent. And the kids love them. So, so they really hold up. Um, but my aperitif is uh, Grizzly Man by Werner Herzog from 2005. Uh, like Columbo, there's no mystery at the beginning of this movie. We know the victims and we know who killed them. Um, but uh, Herzog, as usual, kind of has this amazing vision of what nature is, that it's sort of dumb and terrifying in its indifference. So he clearly cares and sympathizes with this kook who goes into the Alaskan wilderness to... Uh, document bears, uh, the Kodiak grizzlies, and ends up being devoured by one of them. But at the same time, you're watching the movie and any rational person would be 
yelling at this guy if they could to say, get the fuck away from these animals. What are you doing? And you deserve what's coming to you, buddy. Just like a, a general misunderstanding of um, uh, your relationship to nature and in, in, in like yeah. this book in relationship to the animals where you think I'm their friend. I, I sympathize, I sympathize with them and I understand them and they're just sort of, they're just us only bigger and bigger claws. And it's like, yeah, and they will eat you as well. Um, so a lot of the stories in this book, I think are characters just kind of misunderstanding what their relationship is to these animals, either uh, through cruelty, just going over the line and acting like they're not living beings or uh, sympathizing with them too much, you know, going too much into it. Uh, maybe not covering up a ferret's evil deeds, you know, is something that you could take <laughs> away from this book. If uh, the ferret who, who kills the butler, he did it. He did the, <laughs> like the ferret did it, killed the butler. Um, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. So I think that uh, Highsmith has a similar understanding of man misunderstanding, you know, where they are in nature and the way that they treat the animals in this book reminds me of Timothy Treadwell and his unfortunate fate in Herzog's film. Yeah, I think that's a good choice too, because yeah. it, it is what we're we're talking about with this book. It, it's sort of the the flipped perspective where I think the mistake a lot of people make in in Highsmith's book is thinking they have dominion over the animals, that they're the masters and the animals exist to be commanded and to serve the people. And Timothy Treadwell makes the opposite mistake of thinking, we're just buddies, me and these bears, we're pals. I'm a bear myself. Uh, whereas Highsmith's book, I think, is about the completely separate moral sphere of animals from human beings. But also under thinking you understand animals so well that you can turn an engine horse into your your co-conspirator in a murder <laughs> and it's all going to go great. Like nothing could possibly go wrong if I trust this giant horse to, uh, to murder my, uh, my benefactor. <laughs> so Chris, uh, we, uh, we're going to have you go first with your, uh, your pick. Which one did you choose? Of okay. So I, I was divided. I really, when we first talked, uh, I wanted to do, um, Ming's Biggest Prey, which is about a cat named Ming who uh, does not get along with this rich lady's new boyfriend who is stealing from her, stealing her jewelry. And as this boyfriend is constantly sort of trying to kill the cat in very uh, sort of mild ways, like shoving him off a boat or leaving him out in the hot sun, uh, the cat develops an antipathy for him and at one point trips him when he's near the stairs and he falls and dies and breaks his neck. And so that's how Ming gets it. And the reason I want to talk about it was that it's so, it's Tom Ripley as a cat. It's the most purely Patricia Highsmith story uh, at, in here. It's the one that's like a Highsmith novel reduced to a story. And that um, I think that the cat in it, uh, it's also the first one in the book, if you read them in order, where the the cat, the animal doesn't feel like a victim that's having horribleness perpetrated on it. It feels like a psychopath who's going to do what it wants to do regardless of the humans around it. And it's very winning and charming in the same way, uh, winning and charming, gripping and um, hard to, irresistible, hard to resist in the way that the psychopaths and sociopaths are always irresistible in Highsmith's books where she maneuvers you into identifying with very amoral people 
uh, in her novels are not even identifying. It's just the stories are from their perspective and you go along with them and you sort of root for them to get away with it. You do that too here. It has the added bonus of this guy's a real shit and you want to see him dead in a way that's delightful when the cat does it. But I didn't, I didn't pick that one because it is off a little off model. And honestly, I, I picked a different story because I wanted to talk about my main man about the tourist delighting, cat scaring, mangle footed, mangy baby face eaten, bravest rat in Venice. I love this hero rat, the greatest rat who ever lived. This is this is the most uh, wonderful. Talk about the Odyssey. It is it is about uh, a rat um, in Venice, as the title, the bravest rat in Venice, and the story opens with. Uh, these, uh, this family is house sitting for a rich family in Venice. They have a, a house right there on the canal. And like any house, it's sort of half sunken into the water on the basement is starting to fill up like up to the knees. And there's these two just absolutely brat shithead kids who are like around age 10, who go down to the basement with the idea of sort of disrupting tourists and they see a rat and they try and just chop it up right there. They poke it in the eye, cut its front foot off, hack at its back foot. But this rat, my rat gets away. You're not gonna get my guy that easy, okay? He finds his way out and it's all about uh, sort of his adventures going around town and getting stronger and being indefatigable. And, you know, he's big, he's so big and mangled looking, he scares cats. And people like are afraid to hit him on the street and kill him when they see him. And uh, he only has two legs. He only has two legs. Well, his back foot is sort of mangled. He's missing his front leg, his front paw completely. And this is one that, you, you know, uh, as Wendy mentioned, it's sometimes they're from the perspective of the rat. This one is, uh, is with the rat the whole time rather than the people, but it doesn't necessarily get inside his head so much the way it does with some of the larger animals. It sort of stays outside of the rat a little bit. Uh, it tells it sort of third person omniscient more than, uh, than, than being inside his headspace as much as it gets in some of the stories. You know, um, it's not really telling you what the rat is thinking like the way the cockroach is thinking things or, uh, or uh, the dog is thinking things. Bubsy's thinking things. Um, Baron is the dog. Bubsy's the the guy. Bubsy's the guy. Yes, you're right. You're right. And um, and it builds to he rat eventually after going on all these adventures, breeding, having generations of kids, gets back to the house. His pick of the ladies, as we're told. His pick of the ladies, because the other rats are terrified of him. <laughs> And uh, ladies love a bad boy. <laughs> they and this is the baddest boy in all of Venice. This is my, this is my dude. And uh, he gets back. He eventually finds himself back in the house where he was originally hacked up. And these two crummy kids find him again. And you think that they're going to get him, right? He manages to escape. He runs away. The whole family is going out to the movies, except for the babysitter and the baby, right? And they're like, ah, we'll get him when we come home. We shouldn't tell mom. And the babysitter is shocked to find that the rat is in the nursery with the baby. So she closes the door and goes to call her boyfriend, right? 
And then we get, you know, a city baby eaten by rat situation. We get some grave bodily harm in here on this rat. She comes back in and the rat in a panic and terror has chewed the baby's face off and it's inhaling its blood and has a 50-50 chance to live. And, uh, and it's horrifying. It's utterly horrifying. You're obviously on the side of the rat the whole time. And this is, I think, intended to stress your sympathies for the rat as far as you can. I think she's writing the story to say, can I create a character in which the character kills an infant baby at the end and you're still on their side in some fundamental way? Is it possible to write that character? You know, where it's like your character kills an innocent baby and you're like, fuck it. No, I'm still on the rat's side. They shouldn't have fucked with my boy. Fuck around and find out. That's what happens when you mess with the bravest rat in Venice. You think you're going to chop him up? You're never going to get him. He's going to get your little brother and he's going to bite his face off and eat it. Um, it's obviously a horrifying story. I'm making a little bit of a joke uh, out of it. I love but a good baby death. What? <laughs> I said I well, love a good baby death. Well, it's, funny. it's <laughs> funny, Wendy, because I read this story and immediately thought, I know Wendy makes jokes about how she prefers animals to children. <laughs> I think I did Where laugh. Where will her sympathies lie? <laughs> I'm a horrible human. And no, no, it's darkly comedic. I think I did laugh. I was like, oh my God. It just was like smiling. Nobody could see, thankfully, because I had a big mask on my head. But, you know, I was just like, oh. Well, there's so many stories. You didn't have to book. tell everyone. It's okay. It's dead baby. It's, it's dead just baby. the I'm rat. Fine. You don't understand where this rat's coming from. <laughs> Let me tell you about this baby's shithead older brother. You don't know these kids. Um, no, because so it's many of the noting. stories, especially in the first half of the book, are there's a crappy human that you're really psyched to see bite it. You know, there's a lot of them that that feel like that guy sucks, I'm glad. It, there's a certain kind of release to it. And I think this is a shifting point in it where she, it's a trick that she's now playing in the middle of it, where she's saying, are you always on the side of the animals, right? What animals are inherently amoral. You can't judge them according to human morality. They're acting according to animal behavior. Is there actually a moral line that I could get my animal to cross where you'd be like, now that's a bad rat who needs to get the rat electric chair, you know? Like, oh, I hate this rat now, you know? It's worth noting too that, as you said, once we meet the rat, we're it's through his perspective the entire time, but she does back off for the horrific moment. You know, it's not like yeah. we have to read about how juicy the baby's blood was, you know, as he was by eating its nose off or anything like that. Well, he does later on realize he's not hungry because he ate a nose. He does, <laughs> he does later on. He sort of curiously light, has this like, dinner. why am I not yeah. hungry? Well, my belly's pretty full of blood and nose bits. Christ. I like to think too of that ending, how besides being about the rat, it's almost for me like the tragedy of Caesar, the poor boyfriend who gets called over to help, who oh, expects, yeah. hug, expects hugs and kisses for shooing away a harmless rat and then ends up in this faceless baby situation, which yes. is just not ideal, you know? Yeah. And it's also, it, again, it reminds me of Unknown Origin when the rat jumps out of the birthday cake in the dream sequence. Yeah. In that, mm -hmm. Where it's like very, uh, very like killer, crazy rat. Wendy, what did you think about this story? Uh, I actually really liked this one. Um, I almost went with it, I think. 
Um, I actually, there's one part in it that I, I truly enjoyed and it made me like, oh, that's so sweet. I really like the tourist seeing the rat. Yeah. It was so nice. And like, he has like what he has cancer or something like there's something wrong with him. And he's yeah. like, he looks at this rat that is just like mangled, has one eye, does barely has legs at work and just is so gross looking. And he's like, you know what, rat? I'm with you. If you can survive, I can survive. And like tosses yeah. some bread to the rat. I was like, this is pleasant. This is this is nice. I like this. Yeah. I love that scene too. I love the contrast between the two fucking psych- psychopath kids, you know, from the yeah, beginning. They're just exactly. the worst ever to have this old guy who appreciates this rat. Uh, and I'll have something to say about those characters later on as well. But I agree. That's a great scene. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's one of those demonstrations of you can tell who a good human being is in this book by how they relate to the animals and sort of being able to see the the soul and the existential experience of animals in some way. You always are no like that's a good human being, you know, in, in this book is is a point that she makes. That's not you know, that's not a um complicated or unexpected point but she finds really clever ways of illustrating it like that one it's such a small thing too like i mean he has it goes into his brain about like the whole thing about why he likes this rat but like and honestly it's just him seeing a rat and being like here have some bread like that's all you be like the people feeding the pigeons in the park kind of thing so it it was just such a nice little like that's a good human being right there (laughs) yeah and just you know it's it is it is like you mentioned too it's like a whole nother story that you get in two paragraphs of this old couple and he's been told to sort of stop doing his job and come to venice to try and fight whatever it is he's dying of for like the mediterranean air and to relax and and his wife saying like oh he seemed good he seemed like himself for the first time in weeks too it was a good day kind of thing yeah You also get the idea in the story that uh, it's the survivor mentality that kind of makes this rat who he is, right? Because after he's horribly maimed and after his nest is invaded and destroyed and he's forced to go out into the streets of Venice um, with all the, with this debilitating face and this being this horrible, ugly rat gives him the strength to challenge cats when they come up to him and, and not be afraid when things are coming at him and kind of, have this sort of street survivor sort of mentality that kind of moves him forward and yeah having one eye him causes him to look around more and be more aware of his surroundings and to sort of always keep his head on a swivel he also and, has like the balls to always be like yeah i don't do the nighttime stuff i'll go out during the day because everybody's fucking scared of me yeah <laughs> I, exactly so much fun well that also when he realizes if he faints towards people the people jump back from them and it gives him an opportunity to get away and I think about that too. Just to run out, run away from them, yeah. Well, in New York City, when you see a rat on the street, like going from a, a basement to a trash pile, is normally when you see them in New York, they will sort of point at you and take like two steps your way, and you always go, "Oh, you know," and sort of stop in your tracks immediately. I was thinking, or if you're oh, like but- me, I apologize to them apparently. <laughs> <laughs> The other day one was running from a trash can and I thought I hit its tail and I was like, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Rat. (laughs) I will bring you a baby immediately. (laughs) I'll just apologize to it and be like, I'm so sorry, dude. I would too if I stepped on one. I'd absolutely apologize if I I thought I I hit a rat. I, I really like, I find 
you know, that documentary we watched, John, about rats, I guess, was it Morgan Spurlock that made that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it made me like, oh my God, rats are the most disgusting creatures on earth, but I also love them now. Like they're, they're truly gross disease vectors, which is bad for a person like me. But I, I also find them so admirable. At some point, I turned into Peter Weller in Of Unknown Origin, where I'm like, <laughs> look, they have to be my enemy, but I respect them more than my friends. Is that before That's or after right. you built your your rat stick to My attack baseball with. bat with the nails through it and the bear <laughs> trap on the end. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is a great story. I'm glad you picked this one. You know, Ming is very good too, but I think because it is such like a standard sort of Patricia Hyatt-Smith story, um, Engine Horse is a little bit like that too, where there's kind of a classic villain and like a murder plot and things like that. Uh, I didn't have much to say about it, so I'm glad you wanted to talk about this one. Yeah, basically, my I realized my only idea about it was like, oh, it's Ripley, but with a cat. They're even in the Mediterranean. They go into like one of those little houses that they're always spending those sort of uh, coastal townhouses that Patricia Highsmith characters always have access to in the books. But uh, yeah, this one, it's just more, I just, I, I love this rat. And I also, there's something about this story. A lot of these stories gave me a sort of existential terror uh, to consider my own life in terms of animal life. Because I think that there's something that happens when you make an effort to understand animals on their own term and not anthropomorphize them, which she does try to do. It's impossible not to completely avoid doing that. But there's something, you know, you're just constantly left questioning the meaning of existence in comparison to these animals' existences, right? With this rat, it's it's sort of like, well, a lot of the meaning of existence is survival and triumph and being your best self, you know, that that's really what what a lot of existence is. And it's it's inspirational to me in some way. I just really, I like this character. I thought it was really sharply etched. I thought it took good good twists. I could not predict where it was going. You know, you know, all of these stories are going to have a murder in them. So a lot of the times you're thinking like, okay, who's the worst person in this story? They're going to get it. You know, how could this animal kill somebody? You know, you're sort of tracing what she sets up, you know, where it's going. This one, you can't guess in a million years where it's going, you know? Yeah. And it turns yeah. out to be the most innocent victim of them all. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea that the ending was, I'm mean, like, oh, I was like, oh, he's going to get those little turd kids. Yeah. I thought she's going to flip it and this rat's going to get it. Or something. I thought that yeah. like he was going to do something like that. And then it just totally went off in a different direction. I was like, oh, yeah. baby. <laughs> but I do I do think she is trying to find a, a moral limit for an amoral creature in it. And I and I think that that's, that's something that's fascinating about it to think to think about it. Oh, look who's on your couch. Look who just stuck their head up back there. All this rat talks making somebody hungry. <laughs> just kidding. My, 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 my boy, that rat, that cat would be running for the hills. She saw my boy. Yeah, probably. I don't know how he, how he does with rats. I've had uh, one of my other cats have killed a couple of mice before, uh, but I don't know how Guffman does. <laughs> Miss Guffman. He definitely looks like a Tom Ripley type more than anything. He eats my hair at night. So there's really, so, yeah. Like if Wendy has her cat there on the couch with her who just yes. popped up for listeners. They and, may have uh, heard a little meow. He did meow a little bit. Yeah. Good. He'll eat my hair randomly in the middle of the night. Really? Wake up and I'm like, would you stop? What is that? Get away. <laughs> um, 
my so after each one we're just going to do our dessert pairing straight away with our story my dessert pairing is um a george orwell essay called on shooting an elephant which is about when he was a soldier in uh in burma i want to say is where he was and an elephant has um gotten loose uh in the village and killed someone uh, trampled somebody to death. It's a true story based on his time when he was stationed there in the British military. And he's called upon by the villagers to go shoot this elephant. And when he goes down to get it, it's just calm in a field, you know, and like uh, beating itself with the grass in this field. And he realizes there's, it's all about his relationship between I'm an authoritarian figure in this country that we're occupying, that we've colonized. I already hate uh, imperialism and the British military and I'm doing all I can to get out of this. I don't wanna support those structures anymore, but they're looking upon me as an authority figure to get rid of this elephant that's killed somebody. It has to be put down, but it's also owned by a rich guy. It's an owned by an elephant, a rich landowner there. And the villagers aren't afraid of it. They're just psyched to see an elephant get shot, which is a rarity as well. You know, it's like the big deal that's going to be happening in town now. And like everybody brings their kids out and he's a terrible shot on top of it. So he's worried about doing it wrong and getting himself killed or causing this animal to suffer unnecessarily. And it's so uh, it's it's all about the problem of what to do about an animal when confronted with human moral systems and sort of human concerns and he eventually shoots the elephant and he realizes that he's done it not for any of the moral political reasons he's staked out, but because he's afraid of looking foolish in front of the villagers, that he wants to look how he's supposed to look as a soldier and an authority figure and doesn't want to seem foolish for not being able to go through with it, and not having the guts uh, of what he's supposed to do. It's a great essay. It has one of it has a line that I always think about, which is he goes down to make make sure the guy who's been crushed is dead. And he's like, why did I do that? He's been stamped to death by an elephant. He's in the mud and he turns him over and he looks at him. He says he has an expression of unendurable agony. And I think about that phrase all the time, unendurable agony. Um, but it's it's a really powerful and intense essay. And it's and it's also about how being a, a, a colonizer also hurts those who are doing the colonizing. It's bad for everybody. It's a shitty system that has no upside whatsoever. And how, but also how you can say, I don't like this and I don't want to be a part of it, but you still are, you still are the authority figure. And I think that's a lot of moral systems, especially where animals are concerned. When you think about factory farming or vegetarianism or a man's dominion over animal that you can say, I disapprove of this, of this system or I wish it was more ethical or all those different things, but you're still a part of it in some fundamental way. And that ties in, obviously, with the first story of the book, The yes. Chorus Girl's Absolutely Final Performance, I'm guessing is one of the stories that got Wendy going. Because no, like, uh, That's the story I texted both of you guys. I'm like, why do you do this to me? <laughs> yeah. No, I felt bad. It, it's your vegetables yeah. first. Making me cry. <laughs> Get it out of the way, I think. It's a good, good idea. Um, it's so beautiful when I think about it, though. Just that final line where he sees his friend Steve. It's like... 
he, she, chorus girl. She's chorus girl. Yeah. Which is about an elephant story. that that has her, her her gentle loving trainer retires. Uh, she gets sent to a new new trainer. She's in the circus, right? She's just, it's kind of like I think like a sideshow more. Than oh, okay, a, it's like an old fifties. Like on the weekends, zoo. the people come and see her. She doesn't necessarily travel, but she was yeah. taken away from her mother at a young age. So, yeah. which most if you see, and she an saw her mother felled wild. That's exactly what happened. Same with yeah. monkeys. Same with like almost any animal, and especially elephants, which have very traceably great memories too great memories and they emote so much they mourn the loss of their loved ones when they die like elephants go through the whole range of emotions they're such wonderful animals it's so it's so i can sometimes talk myself into zoos as sort of preservative ethical things except for elephants i just think you can't do it to elephants yeah They're, they're too they're just too big they're too human in that way, they, their their emotional space is too recognizably human to me to accept putting them in cages. You know, especially like I feel like a lot of zoos. I don't know if they do. I know the Bronx Zoo does camel rides. I think, and I'm like, don't do like animals aren't for riding. Like, yeah, I know, but camels are also incredible assholes. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> that is true. But like, never ride an elephant. You should not be riding elephants. Like, if you're it's going- so overtly mean. Yeah, yeah, like that's not what they're meant for. If you go to a different country that has like a, an elephant sanctuary, make yeah. sure it's one that doesn't give you rides that you're just yeah. there to observe the animals and maybe give them, help them with a bath or something like yeah. that. But anyway, Chorus Girl's trainer gets retired, uh, retires because he's gotten old. She gets a new trainer who's a dickhead. He, she, he eventually pushes her too far. She tramples him, gets out of her cage, goes on like a gentle rampage in which she clearly doesn't understand why everyone is afraid of her you know she it takes you into her mind space where it's very logical that she went after the person who was doing wrong and now that she's free she's going to do things like eat some trees and wander over here and look at the monkeys and some of the other animals go as well like she's like you're in a cage too let me out like, and it also, I think she begins her rampage because the tourists were being mean to her. They start throwing rocks at her and she's like, I'm yeah. tired of this. What is it that they throw at her that she eats? Cause she thinks it's a fruit or something. It's, and it turns it, out to be a rock. Yeah. Is it that it's a rock? That, uh, I, I thought, it's yeah. A rock Cause it hurts her teeth. Like she bites down and like, she's used yeah. to them throwing peanuts and stuff like that at her. But like, okay. I thought there was a description or something about it tasting hot. I can't remember. Maybe. Oh yeah, there is. There's some, it might just be the searing pain or something of like a toothache kind of yeah. thing. They, some asshole throws something at her that clearly yeah. is not good for her to eat. And she does. And that's what sets off the whole uh, rampage. Wendy, lest you feel, lest you left the story feeling that Highsmith had a black heart and was just out to get you. Let me read this quote from her. She <laughs> says, I, I wrote chorus girls, absolutely final performance which is my elephant story. And I had read, I had to read the thing five times, fifth time being proofreading. And every time tears were coming down my cheeks. I hope it does not affect every reader like this. <laughs> it affected me. <laughs> uh, so many of the stories were just like, what, uh, which I understand how she, like you have to write it a certain way, but I was like, oh my God, all these animals are just being treated like turds. <laughs> I know. It was just so rough to read, like the abuse of all the animals. But what was the other story that got you going? 
because I know it's not the one you picked. What's what was the other story that got you going in this collection? Um, it was the one about the horse and that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But it was more about like the kitten. It, like the kitten. It was the yeah. kitten and the horse, and they had that beautiful little friendship. And then yeah. the guy just steps on the kitten. And falls on her like falls a jackass. Her, knows it's still alive and then just kicks its head in. And I was like, oh, oh. And then takes it by its tail and whips it into a bush. I couldn't. It was too much for me. And I was like, the poor horse lost its friend. And oh, my God, this is so. And boring. also, and also the way she was written. I was like, oh, my yeah. God. I could just like visualize it way too much. And I was like, oh. But also the way she's written the horse, which is very accurate, is horses are kind of blank animals. They don't have a big interior space when you're around horses. They're like similar to chickens. Like you just look in their eyes and you're like, I don't see anything in there. So you know the horse isn't going to get conscious revenge some of the other way the animals do. So when the kitten dies, it's not like, oh, I'll at least get the relief of this horse getting this motherfucker you know that you know you're going to get in some of the other stories of like when they do something really bad you're like that guy's going to get his and that animal's going to get you know it's revenge in some way um although she doesn't lean into it that much I, I think i'm overstating that a little bit but with the horse it's doubly just upsetting because the horse likes having the kitten around and you just know it's not going to be able to do anything about it that it's just had something that's now lost for it you know but i do like that at the end of the story the grandma puts that story onto the horse because yeah. the grandma finds the kitten in the bushes and she was like oh he must have stepped on her and like yeah. puts it onto the horse of like that's why the horse was i mean the horse was just trying to get out of the river and that's why it yeah. crushed the man and whatnot but like she's like that's probably why it was acting so weird yeah, yeah the, the poignancy of, of that is that she yeah they plot to kill her by purposely moving the cart into the river and having her be crushed and drowned. And it totally turns on them. And they're the ones who get killed. And uh, she never gets it. She is completely ignorant of the whole plot. She thinks this was just a weird thing that happened. So she does not connect that this guy was trying to kill her. And yet at the end, her grandson, she blames the horse for killing the cat. It's just it's kind of tragic how she has this complete misperception of the situation in both cases. No, she puts it together at the end. She she says that she knows her grandson had something to do with the cat dying and that the horse was got yeah. got revenge for it. That's she makes up a story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She's a little mixed so up, wait, yeah. here's the plot, just because listeners are going to be completely lost. <laughs> Sorry, There's a fine, grandmother sorry. who has a farm uh, who's obviously doing well financially. She has a no good Nick grandson who shows up with her uh, you know, doofy cheap girlfriend. And wife. ask the grandmom to invest what? Wife. A wife? Yeah, I think there. How were... could he marry a woman like that? <laughs> I just don't believe it. And uh, tries to convince the grandmom to invest in this roadhouse saloon bar that he wants to to have. And she's like, "Yeah, no thanks. You can have the house and the farm. You know, when I pass on." So the the grandson gets this idea to get to take grandmom on a picnic and get the big horse that he used to call the engine horse when he was a kid to drive the cart out to the picnic. And when they cross the bridge into the river, steer the horse too close to the side and have them fall off into the river. And grandmom will die or at least get so severely injured that she has to give up the farm and can give him the money for everything. And the uh, wife hops off before it, but the horse falls into the river, the grandmom gets out, the horse freaks out because it's trapped in a cart in the river and 
crushes the grandson to death in a supremely horrible way. The wife runs over to help him. She gets her knee shattered by the thrashing horse. Uh, and then the grandmom goes back. The grandson has accidentally crushed the kitten that's friends with the horse earlier, finds the kitten's body and puts it together, creates this story of, oh, my grandson killed this cat somehow and the horse saw it and loved it. And that's why the horse went off the bridge. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's it's, a it's good a nice, nice, complicated sort of crime. It was <laughs> very, story. yeah, it was very kind of pulpy. It was yes, it's, it's pulpy. regular crime novel stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> John, what story did you select? Because we're going to let our, our guest go last. Correct, sir? Absolutely. But Don't before, dispute me on that. I didn't get a chance to give this other Highsmith quote, which is one of my all-time favorites when we were talking about Bravest Rat in Venice, yes. which is that she once told uh, an interviewer that uh, creepy ideas came to her as frequently as rats have orgasms. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> so she always had rats on the brain, I think is what I'm trying to say. That's a lot. Rats were not able to defeat rats because of how quickly they reproduce quickly for they mammals. Reproduce, they, yeah. they, they well, that was what was so terrifying about the Spurlock yeah. movie was it set this apocalyptic kind of idea in your head of like rats just just completely overpowering human beings at one point. It's overwhelming the population because yeah, they Yeah, but I really so love the uh, the solution that those, that those two uh, women scientists came up with of, because rats also develop uh, uh, resistance to poison very easily. So in New York City now, they use birth control on the rats. They put, instead of putting poison out, they put birth control in the food to slow the amount of birthing that rats do. There's mm -hmm. this, this thing that they put in it. It's like, well, surely that's not an ecological disaster waiting to happen in some way. That's surely be that will never be passed down and passed down. To yeah, work. surely that's not going to end up in my water affecting <laughs> me at all nope. sounds, like a mim out, sounds like a mimic type situation for sure and then shit yeah. it out it's great yeah but it's but it's uh it is funny to try and defeat the rats by defeating how many orgasms they have stopping i guess they have the same number of orgasms i guess it's defeating how many uh uh eggs they fertilize yeah they can't stop out. it it's like trying to yeah. stop patricia highsmith from coming up with creepy ideas you can't do it it's true it's true by Speaking getting her, of... by not allowing her to get pregnant anymore. Am I keeping this <laughs> metaphor correct? But... I, think, I think we're still in the, yeah, we're good. We're good. I think, yeah. Uh, speaking of George Orwell, writer of Animal Farm, I picked the pig story in the dead of truffle season, which is a story about Samson, a large white two-year-old pig in the prime of life, living in the town of Cahors in Southern France on a farm owned by Emile who is an older man living with his wife, his son and daughter-in-law and their child. He is kind of your classic Southern French farmer in the turtleneck with a bottle <laughs> of Ar 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 Armagnac in his pocket. Uh, and he takes, and he takes Samson out to, uh, to hunt for truffles during the dead of winter. The, the truffle hunting season is when Samson flourishes. Um, and eventually a contest is announced, a truffle hunting contest where the first prize is a cuckoo clock plus 100 francs. Second prize is a transistor radio. Third prize is you're fired. And <laughs> Emil just decides that's that he's going to enter Samson into it. He's going to find the most truffles. Now, I love this story because it kind of contrasts Samson's very simple life, living as this giant pig on a farm. They talks about how he never has to 
uh, push other pigs out of the way because he's so massive. He can just literally walk into a crowd of piglets and they just get bowled over by him. Uh, he just lives, lives a very lazy, very simple life compared to the kind of the shit that humans have to deal with. They talk about how Emil has to can't pay for the gas to sell the truffles directly to the pate manufacturer. So he has to sell them to uh, through a middleman, a local delicacy shop for less money. And just that kind of stuff comes up a lot about just the normal kind of crap that humans have to come with, uh, have to uh, have to deal with in a meal, sort of, you know, dealing with all these things all the time. Um, and then when it comes to the contest and the actual killing of a meal by Samson, what I love in contrast to these other stories is that there's not really anything noble about it whatsoever. <laughs> uh, we're not dealing with an abused elephant. We're not dealing with, you know, a cat striking out in self-defense. This is uh samson's kind of an asshole <laughs> he's just kind of a jerk uh he just wants to eat the food is all it is he's just a greedy pig who wants to eat the food and a meal is in his way uh you that could argue fucking greedy pig <laughs> you could argue that there's a small aspect of um jamal's revenge right the story about the camel that's where yeah. which also has a competition and um you know, they talk about Emil having sawed off Samson's upper tusks and he mistreats him by kicking him and such. But beyond that, there's really no exact motivation um, other than Samson just being this kind of a bully pig. It, uh, right it should also be dies. noted that he's so massive, the kicks don't hurt him. Yeah. That, that the, it makes clear that Samson, you can't, that he's not being hurt by Emil. That by his hide so thick that, yeah, yeah. basically nothing, nothing hurts this guy. That he's ready to like get into it with dogs. Like, you get the feeling that he would just kill unremorsely. No, I thought he was going to kill that dog when he's tied up outside of the bar. Absolutely, the I thought that's what was going like, to happen. Oh no, he probably would if he could. Um, uh, this great description. Uh, so what happens is he finds these truffles and just decides, "Fuck it, I'm just going to eat these." And he just starts <laughs> wolfing down the truffles with uh, Emil trying to stop him. And then he goes for the truffles and that's, that are already in the bag, and. In, uh, knocks over a meal and it, it, it's very very realistic how it goes from like you know oh, I gotta get this pig under control to holy shit he's going to kill me I am going to die right now and it has yeah. this fantastic description of right before he dies where it says Samson uh, Emil sees Samson as an awful evil force in the most hideous form which is terrific but also it's not true he's just a pig you know it's like a tsunami to a, to someone might seem like an evil force, but it's just water and you're in its way. You know, again, I think this is sort of the Harazal kind of idea of dumb, indifferent nature, you know, and if you're in the way of this pig, it's going to kill you to eat the truffles. Um, but Emil coming to this re uh, revelation of, you know, who is there, or, or Samson coming to this revelation of who is there to shoo him away now, finding this freedom of, you know, oh, with people not around why am i working for people why do i have to find truffles for the people i can find truffles for myself <laughs> this independence becomes kind of this funny liberating thing and i think with a lot of these stories like we were just talking about with rat of venice uh bravest rat in venice is that the animal becomes so self-sufficient that the ending even though it's kind of it's absolutely horrific you know this person is is killed becomes sort of light in a weird way and almost kind of encouraging <laughs> you know well, he gets so a happy that's why ending. i love the story yeah he so, yeah it becomes a happy ending right exactly <laughs> you're good i forget what i was about to say uh happy ending oh the happy ending uh so the happy ending is kind of like a 
dun 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 though because like <laughs> it's, it's a farmer he goes on to because he's just like yeah I, I i ate some truffles but like i kind of want to sleep somewhere you know and wanders onto a farm where the farm a new farmer found him and is like this pig's awesome like whatever come live with me <laughs> it's the henry portrait of a serial like, killer oh. ending or, yeah, or pretty exactly. poison ending too where uh, she gets away <laughs> exactly it's just kind of like the farmer's like oh he might be a good truffle hunter someday and you're like oh it's gonna repeat <laughs> and samson's just gonna go from farm to farm <laughs> murdering <laughs> farmers for their truffle and then there's gonna be a pig detective coming after him <laughs> have you seen this pig been moving I would, from I would town that, to town. I would hope that that character victims. would be played by the actor who plays the patriarch in A Christmas Tale. You know, the big... <laughs> oh yeah, it would be perfect. <laughs> that would so, be amazing. So, uh, I really, I like this one too. This is one that's also mid book where it feels a little like she's she set up the form and then starts to try and do different things with it for the rest of the book. And this is the first one that both feels a little bit like a, um, uh, uh, like a, a bit of a, a ambiguous happy ending in a way that the others sort of have happy endings like uh, like the, the camel getting a new owner and uh, basically cheering know, for Jamal to yeah, get his revenge. In that yeah. Way. And, and Bubsy getting the, uh, getting getting the axe getting his air tubes all torn up and uh oh, and this is Poor one that Bubsy. It... he just seems like a loser <laughs> Bubsy. that guy sucks Bubsy blows <laughs> give it to the guy's daughter she'd take care of him he just seems no, like a completely a better life now he just seems like a completely um uh he's some actor loser. who married a rich guy yeah. yeah some actor who married a rich guy playwright who's much older than him you know he doesn't deserve that dog. No, he's a Bear very is a good great boy. dog. I, I read that story dog. and my immediate thought was, I got to get a dog. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I got to get a fancy show dog. What kind, what of, what kind of dog? Like we don't have to get too into the story, but what kind of dog do you think Baron is? I pictured an Airedale. I pictured a Schnauzer. <laughs> a wow, Schnauzer a did that damage? <laughs> That's what I picture. Like, those are the ones with the kind of like the beards, right? Like, yeah. the beardy beards. Yeah, that's what I pictured that dog as, like a little schnauzer. I mean, all he has to do is chew on some tubes. Yeah, like my cats could have done that. That's like, true. Take that much to chew a tube. That is that is true. Anyone could chew a tube. <laughs> I know the rats could have chewed a tube. <laughs> the cockroach could have chewed a tube. My my rat my rat from Venice would have chewed the tube. There's no question, and they never would have caught him. Never in a million years, they would have been like some animal chewed this tube. This guy's dead now, and his face is eaten off. <laughs> Must have been the bravest rat in Venice. I also love in this story how Emil uh, is so excited about this cuckoo clock and how much yes. he wants to win it. You know, and again, it's in one of those things where it's like Samson is just thinking about eating and, you know, going on and getting something to eat. And you got Emil here thinking, man, that cuckoo clock's going to look so good on my <laughs> shelf. The contrast between, you know, the priorities, I think, of humans and animals. Yeah, that's one of these uh, kind of theme that you see in this one that you see in a lot of these stories is Emil thinks he has control over this animal too, but absolutely does not. And he sort of has a crummy collar with just a piece of rope around it. And you run into that in a lot of these stories, especially at Goat It's his belt. It's not even a yeah, proper collar. Yeah. yeah, I think yeah. it's his old belt or something. Because his neck is so big, a regular collar won't fit. Yeah. <laughs> 
And that's an interesting thing that I think is an intentional point on her part, sort of the arrogance of just assuming the animals are completely under your control and your property and yours to do whatever you want with them, with them, that leads to a, a laxness of it. But I agree, it's one of the first more ambiguous ones where you don't necessarily think of yourself as being on, uh, on the pig's side uh, in it. Um, it's one of the ones that does feel more horrifying to me. Also because I, I think pigs, I really like pigs as animals. I think pigs are super smart, they're cool animals, but they're also a horrifying animal too. If you've ever been around big hogs, like you do feel like this thing could accidentally kill me. It just has that, that behavior of massive, excitable, and like oblivious, you know, they just feel like animals that, that can roll over on you in a way that um, like a camel is not, a camel could probably more easily kill you than a pig, but they just won't. They just don't, they don't do that necessarily. It's not really in the, they'll bite you, but it's not in their personality in the same way. Whereas pigs are just like rolling chaos machines in some way, especially the wilder they are that they're yeah. really sort of rumbling, bumbling things that are, that are genuinely dedicated to grossness and gluttony. Like the calling people a pig is, is very, it's a true statement. I'd as be curious what Highsmith's saying rats uh, have orgasms. I'd be curious what Highsmith's thoughts on pigs were actually coming from this story because she really sets up this air of arrogance around Samson. You know, yeah. he is completely single-minded with, you know, his own desires and his own needs. Uh, while at the same time, you know, wanting to liberate him from having to serve his human owner, you know, yeah, get back out there into the wild to find those delicious truffles, black truffles under yeah. the ground, under the cold ground. Samson is really convinced he's the man. It's a very similar story <laughs> in a lot of ways to to the Billy Goat story, the goat ride that ends it, where Billy is also convinced he's the man in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And gets away and ends up on a different farm. I will say in in the book. That, that I thought Goat Ride is the weakest story, the last one, and I'm a little disappointed it's the ender for it. It feels like a rehash of Dead of Truffle Season in some ways, and a reha a little bit of Chorus Girl to it, and, and just a little bit too much of the other stories to it. Did feel like she was running out of steam a little bit towards the end. And a less, less dynamic guy. Billy is not, he doesn't have that star quality that the bravest rat in Venice does. Or Samson. Samson's a star too. It's really true. Samson knows he's hot shit. What did you think of this story, Wendy? What did what did you take away from it? Um, I like this one. I thought I found it very similar to the camel one as well, mm -hmm. um, except for it has a nicer ending. Well, yeah, camel ending ends. Very I mean, the nice. camel ending's great, but like I was <laughs> cheering for the camel ending because I was yeah. like, I love that people were just cheering this camel on. The, the whole story of, of Jamal is just people being like, "This guy sucks. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> likes time. him. He stinks." <laughs> Nobody likes him. He's and it's also crazy that it. he loses the race because he just won't give his camel water out in the desert. It's exactly. like, how dumb of a dumb dumb are you? You know. I think yeah. that's the biggest difference too is that you know he gets his comeuppance because he mistreats the animal kind of almost knowingly whereas you know poor Emil <laughs> he's just trying to hunt some truffles he's not really doing anything horrible besides you know the occasional kick you know to get his pig yeah. back in the game uh you know it all reminds me actually of this amazing reality show I saw years ago I think it was called Man versus Beast yeah. and there was oh. one part 
there's one part where they, they have a zebra. Hmm? Is that show still on or am I just, I think it might be on Netflix or something like that. Maybe. I, like- I, I It was a one-off at the time because they had like a bear versus like an eating champion, like a hot dog eating champion. Oh, like that. Okay, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was like, like literally like a person oh, and they wow. had a champion uh, runner against a zebra on a racetrack. And what I always, the thing I always remember from this is they had like, you know, a list of like strengths and, you know, and, and things they have to like, you know, keys to the game. Right. So for each competitor, so they do the human first, like, you know, he's got to, he's got to get a good lead. You know, he's got to know where he's at, blah, 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 and everything like that goes to the zebra. And it's like things that the zebra needs to keep in mind has to realize it's a race was one of the things that they put in there. <laughs> Where the weaknesses for the human, like the last one is like, is a human. He's not a goddamn zebra. Yeah, yeah like you're running against the zebra. <laughs> That's to remember it's a race. And I always think about that when it comes to things with involving animal competition. Like you know, Samson doesn't realize this is a race to get the truffles. He just wants yeah. to eat the truffles. He wants to eat, and yeah. he's not allowed to eat. Like, but, but Jamal does have a certain awareness I that don't... it's a race because they talk about how he knows he's fast. He knows that he can kind of effortlessly overtake the other camels and he has like a little bit of pride in it. So he's a little more humanized, I think, in that respect. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Like Samson is just like this big, lovable doofus. Like he's just kind of, he's kind of like. You'd say he's a John Cribbs type. He's like Lenny from Of Mice and Men, where he doesn't know what he's doing. He's just living his best life, trying to get some truffles. (laughs) Tell me about the truffles, George. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was, a, I think because Samson really is just such a, a character that you're just like, it, it was a good one. I liked that one. I thought it was fun. Yeah, I think and it's I also. I really did like the ending where it just kind of was a. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Smash zoom on Samson looking at the camera as ominous it's music like, plays. It's like the Simpsons. Uh... His lips. <laughs> <laughs> like from the Simpsons. If the animal got a chance, he would eat you with everyone you cared end. about. What'd you say, John? Uh, the Simpsons line uh, where they're doing the uh, anti-vegetarian documentary, and he's and Troy McClure at the end of it says, "If a cow got a chance, he'd eat you and everyone you cared about." <laughs> <laughs> but I also like in this Smash one the contrast the between like a meal sort of crummy, small French farm life and Emile's life and uh, in some and uh and Samson's life in some way you know that just uh, when I say some of these stories gave me existential terror it's like what is Emile doing that's different than what Samson's doing like Emile's pursuits with like the cuckoo clock you mentioned seem more absurd in some way mm-hmm. than to just be Samson and to live like Samson that there's something that that makes human endeavor feel uh, illusory and worthless when I read these in contrast to the animals. I think it's pointed on Highsmith's part in a lot of ways to, to talk about human value systems and moral systems, uh, to undermine them intentionally through the animals that exist entirely outside of them. Right, or why do they want to find the truffles? Emil wants to find the truffles to brag to his friends, to sell it at a markdown price, to the delicacy shop. Samson wants to eat. He needs to wants to survive. You know that's why he's hunting the truffles. 
Was the prize really a kook? I totally don't remember that. I thought it was, there was like monetary. Yeah, it's it was hundred francs plus one hundred francs. Yeah. Oh, okay. It was a combo. Okay. I was like, bit, I yeah. don't remember the cuckoo clock at all. That is hilarious. It's also it's interesting how how quickly she can sketch a character to make you hate them. Like the young guy who's leading the competition. Like just in like three sentences, you're like, oh fuck this dude who's like making jokes about the TV station might show up and the integrity of truffle hunting. And you're like, Oh, get this guy out of my face. I hate this guy. <laughs> Just like in but always in like three sentences, you're like, Oh, I loathe this character as much as I've ever hated anyone in my life. So many times <laughs> all throughout her work. But but when she really wants to do it quickly in the short stories, it's amazing how she'll just like find that detail about Bubsy to just be like, I hate him already. You know, like the velvet pants he's wearing at one point. It's like, <laughs> I don't like this guy. You know, I'm out. So I uh, chose as a dessert to go with in the Dove's Truffle Season, a poem by Roald Dahl called The Pig from his collection Dirty Beasts. And I think I'm just going to read it because it's not very long. Awesome. <clears throat> the Pig by Roald Dahl. In England once there lived a big and wonderfully clever pig. To everybody it was plain that Piggy had a massive brain. He worked out sums inside his head. There was no book he hadn't read. He knew what made an airplane fly. He knew how engines worked and why. He knew all this, but in the end, one question drove him round the bend. He simply couldn't puzzle out what life was really all about. What was the reason for his birth? Why was he placed upon this earth? His great brain went round and round. Alas, no answer could be found. Till suddenly, one wondrous night, all in a flash, he saw the light. He jumped up like a ballet dancer and yelled, By gum, I've got the answer. They want my bacon slice by slice to sell at a tremendous price. They want my tender, juicy chops to put in all the butcher's shops. They want my pork to make a roast, and that's the part will cost the most. They want my sausages and strings. They even want my chitterlings. The butcher shop, the carving knife, this is the reason for my life. Such thoughts as these are not designed to give a pig great peace of mind. Next morning, in comes Farmer Bland, a pail of pig swill in his hand, and Piggy, with a mighty roar, bashes the farmer to the floor. Now comes the rather grisly bit, so let's not make too much of it, except that you must understand that Piggy did eat Farmer Bland. He ate him up from head to toe, chewing the pieces nice and slow, it took an hour to reach the feet because there was so much to eat. And when he'd finished, Pig, of course, felt absolutely no remorse. Slowly, he scratched his brainy head, and with a little smile, he said, I had a fairly powerful hunch that he might have me for his lunch. And so, because I feared the worst, I thought I'd better eat him first. This is amazing. I've never heard that before. Great I love that. <laughs> so you can see, the, obviously, why we would pair that one. This is a unlike samson who you know i don't walk think me has through it john homicidal intentions um you know this is just a great bit about you know pig existentially realizing that hey if i want to live i better eat this guy instead i love that that was so great i was so worried where he was going i was like oh poor piggy but then yay <laughs> So oh, yeah, oh, I was yeah. worried. I was like, is this going to be like more existential terror? Is the pig going to be like he realized there's no reason for anything for winter, he, summer, he thought he was going or to the spring? At the end. You live and live and then you die, and there will never be a reason why <laughs> this pig he hung himself from the rafters. Exactly. Yeah. And there is another thing I'd recommend because I just watched it. It's this new movie called uh, Gunda by mm -hmm. uh, Victor Koskowski. 
Uh, I was going to ask you how it was. Have you seen it? I have not. I'm slightly scared it'll make me cry. But I want to. I want to say I want to recommend it to everyone except Wendy Mays because that last scene <laughs> is going to make you cry. I guarantee oh, it. No, the last scene. But it is a beautiful, beautiful film. Uh, people probably know him uh, for making Aquarella, which was this amazing documentary about water and ice from a few years ago. Uh, and this is just a simple film about Gunda, a sow, and her piglets living on a farm with a couple chickens and cows. And it just, I don't want to say much about it, just something that people have to experience, but I will say that they're just, he, he gets into this world so, you get so immersed into this world. He shoots these animals like Ray Harryhausen creatures. And there's a point where a chicken, you're just tracking along with this chicken for so long and he comes to a fence and it's jarring. You're like, what the fuck is that? You're so immersed in this film that this intrusion of this human made thing really knocks you back so that's just the kind of hypnotism that this 90 minute film works on you so highly recommend it to everybody it's fantastic it looks gorgeous like every Super the trailer gorgeous. that i saw looked gorgeous but i was like oh make me cry yeah john is it gonna make me cry remember that's a very low bar to clear when it comes to animal stuff i recommend it to everybody but wendy mays and chris funderberg <laughs> <laughs> But I'm also not afraid to cry, John. I'm in touch with my emotions. <laughs> oh, are you saying that I'm not- <laughs> I'd cry at the drop of a hat, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, Wendy, I'm curious to hear your selection and whether or not it made you cry. Uh, mine did not make me cry. This is the one that I didn't. Uh, and uh, weirdly, I, I picked like the one story that really honestly doesn't have any aspect of it coming from the the animal's perspective. It's purely from the, the people's perspective. Um, but I chose the day of reckoning, um, oh. the chicken story. Um, and uh, I, I think I, I picked it, it to me, it was just such a cinematic story. It was very like film noir almost like I just could see it being made into a movie and I was like oh I really like this one um, but basically what it is is there's a, a young man by the name of John who goes to visit his uncle's farm uh, and his uncle has just started doing factory farming uh, with chickens meaning that all the chickens are no longer free range they're all in these small cages where they're on a tilt so that they're constantly trying to shuffle back they can't turn around which is what factory farming is and uh they're constantly kind of pushed towards food so that they keep eating and keep eating and keep eating um so and his uncle is very excited about this there's a wife that's involved that's very beautiful even though she's 31 um <laughs> she's and, almost still a woman yes exactly uh <laughs> there's that so like he comes to visit the uncle's very excited by this new thing he's been doing it for about a year um and then it's kind of like it takes place over maybe like two days it seems like the the boy is supposed to the man john is supposed to come and stay with him for like a month i think but uh on the first day it's so when john shows up he notices a dead kitten in the road which is very sad, but at least the kitten, we don't see the kitten die. It's just a flattened kitten. Um, the fact that it was coming off of Engine Horse 2, I was like, what is she doing? I know. I'm trying to give Wendy a look where cats don't die, and now we've got two dead in a row. Especially because I didn't know what the story was going to be about. And I was like, oh my God, more dead cats. What is <laughs> happening here? Son of a bitch. Uh, <laughs> 
why did we make you read this book, Wendy? I don't understand why we did this. But I, I <laughs> Sorry, like, go on. Because it was so, so the kitten ends up a bit of foreshadowing, obviously. The kitten is the, the young daughter's kitten. And so the mom and John go into town to, or to their neighbor's yard to get a new kitten for the daughter. And while they're there, they visit the neighbor's chickens that are all free range and get to hang out. And the wife is just like, oh my God, look at how happy these chickens are. It's great. I love watching chickens just be stupid and fun and just they're dumb animals. Look at how and much- they have these beautiful feathers and color to them. And they're just like- Yeah, just <laughs> like the probably healthiest, laying an egg that's hitting kitchen. the floor and cracking open and they don't care. Oh, but... because they've because uh, they've roosted in a empty car body, like a broken down car. And where they've roosted when they drop their eggs, it just falls to the ground because they're in like the frame. Exactly. It. It's so great. And then on the other, so then back at the farm, um, John sees the lay of the land and there, it goes into quite a lot of detail about factory farming, which I could tell that she did her research because it is very much how factory farming and how cruel factory farming is, including the chopping off of beaks and the bloody breasts because the, the chickens are always kind of pressed up against these mechanicalisms and that's not a real word, but it is now. And, and these kind of things. Um, and then tragedy strikes where the mom and John are off in the city one day, during the day having fun. There's implied romance, but not really happening. Um, and they come back and they come back to the doctors at the house. In my mind, reading the story, you're automatically thinking, oh, something happened to the father. <clears throat> Something happened to the father because he's the asshole of the character yeah, or of the story. He's the jerk yeah. that's having these birds that's delighted about doing factory farming because he can do it by himself and it's making him so much money. But no, it's the daughter, the one that just had her kitten crushed, got a new kitten, and she's the one who dies. Uh, she goes chasing after said new kitten in the factory and gets her head i guess crushed like it she's worried the truck the first kitten gets truck crushed by the feed truck that's unloading right and this new kitten runs towards the feed truck again and she goes to stop it from getting crushed like the last one did and she gets crushed the way crushed by a truck it's like the feed truck crushed by the the fact like the yeah the way it's described it's it's unloading the feed so it's pouring like a ton of feed into a silo thing and that's what she's getting crushed by some part of the feed apparatus right the cat gets into she's chasing after the cat and she ends up dying Um, very pet cemetery term events i'll just throw out there yes it really is so then uh obviously that's tragedy and it was it was really interesting the next bit because i felt like everybody was acting not how you would think that people would react when a child dies like the mom obviously goes into like a bit of a state of shock but she's she just kind of goes and you don't really see her and then the dad just kind of drink i don't know there was like not necessarily a lot of sadness in the feelings of how those characters were written. he seems shocked his his line it's a that it's been a hell of a day 
yeah is very is feels very like he feels zombified to me too uh, in this there's something about the factory farm that's making him screwed up in the brain as well that he just like sits around doing calculations about how much money he's making all day and doesn't really have work to do anymore and so when his daughter dies he processes it in this very robotic way you know like he sort of doesn't know how to get knocked off track in some way you know like he's almost like being forced along the feed line in the same way as the chickens you know he has this like feed line as whiskey Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or just like, this is my life and we're on the track, you know, yeah. and even and my daughter dying isn't going to knock me off of it. You're viewing it. So you're identifying with John, the, the young man that's come to stay with, stay with these, this family. Who's and like, this is fucking awful. Yeah, this is, this is a like, nightmare I've walked I don't into. know what to do now. Like, what, should I leave this place? Should I stay for the summer? I don't know what to do. Uh, and he's just watching these two people who lost their young daughter and being like, I don't know what to do. Um, eventually he falls asleep and wakes up in the middle of the night to a weird sound coming from the factory. It turns out that the uncle is in there trapped inside. The chickens have all been let loose and now they are pecking him to death. Um, and it turns out that the wife has started a small fire inside of the factory um told her husband about it and when he went to go check on it she let all the chickens loose and closed both the front gate and the back gate on him knowing that the chickens since all their lives all they've been trained to do is just eat 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 would then attack him and eat 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 um, and, and they're also insane. At one point, he yeah, I think I mean, it's John has story, the thought of these that. these chickens are insane. She says it. Yeah, yeah, she's the one who says. Oh, she it. says it. That's yeah, right. she's the one who's describing it. it's early on, and she's just like, I don't know, our chickens are insane. Um, yeah, they've they been act- driven insane. Yeah, they've been driven insane by these factory conditions. Um, and so it's just this whole thing. I'm like, oh, this story has everything for me. It has, <laughs> it takes place on a farm. You got a young man coming here with an older woman that he thinks is still hot. And I'm like, ooh, a kid dies, yay. And then I'm like, ooh, a vengeful wife now takes it out. I mean, I know she's still, to me, she's still in the shock process of like losing her daughter and obviously, it's her husband's fault and this is how she deals with the loss of her daughter but like it's just and then like they're sitting there watching these chickens wander off into freedom and he's like I've never and they don't even know how to stand up, up to the sky yeah because and he's they've, like, they've been on the shuffling machine so they fall over when they try and walk yeah they used don't to know on the how to walk machine. and she's like they've never been on grass before and it's this very cinematic thing of them sitting in the window because they've had to escape all these chickens because chickens don't know what to do and they keep it mm-hmm. kind of picking at them and then they kiss <laughs> fun and i was just like this is great the chickens are free she's got a new hot man in her life <laughs> the kittens are all dead monster the the new cat lives you don't think the chickens got that new cat no because give was me a break inside <laughs> we made a note to note that the basket that john had bought for the new kitten the kitten when they came home the dog oh yeah you're right you're right you're being right. in the corner in the new basket 
<laughs> Ismith would not let that detail slip. Would it? And the way the things John I love is about, like, sorry, go ahead. No, one of the things I love about this story is that it is like if you're not like I, I think when people look back at the 20th century or the 21st century, factory farming will be one of those. I can't believe this poisonously evil thing was accepted by humanity. I think it's going to be one of those things that's really going to be a blight on our era. And this movie, this movie, this, this story really does have the moral poison of factory farming like seeps out to infect everything around it that it's really about just how this morally corrupt structure is just making not the chickens insane but everybody insane who's touching it who's coming near it it's crushing to them to death making them crazy making them totally miserable and unable to function like people there's this automation of the natural world that is nightmarish it's absolutely hellish this story what's happening inside the chicken inside the chicken factory it's really truly unsettling stuff and i think that this is one of the most if you're looking for kind of like a traditional animal lovers vegetarian minded story in this book this is the one for that you know so i can completely understand why you responded to it i respond to it that way too as well it also really affected me because i once saw a documentary and i've always tried to find it and not known where it was i saw a documentary like 10 minute documentary once about a parrot insane asylum in san francisco where you can drive parrots are really intelligent animals and you can drive them insane the putting the coverings over their cages at night makes them lose their mind and there's this essentially insane asylum for them for they just they go in insane they can't function like birds anymore they pull all of their own feathers out they talk nonsense they and it's and it's like being in a house full of crazy people you know they just sort of have to be locked up they become like dangerous insane things and i really thought about that when when reading this story of just like you've not dehumanize the chickens, you've de-chickenized the chickens in factory farming. You've taken something out of their soul and warped it and crushed it so fundamentally that they're no longer chickens, you know, in well, some yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, she talks about cannibalism. Like, she's like, have you ever seen a chicken be a cannibal? And like, cause- And I was like, I've else. been on farms, chickens eat all kinds of yeah, crazy Yeah, I was like, oh, I see, I see birds eat other birds all the time. What are you I've seen about? chickens eat a lot of mice and rats. It's really yeah. gross. <laughs> chickens will just eat anything. But yeah, like, and it's funny to like see, there's a weird dream sequence too in the, in the, in the short. And you're just like, what? But like anytime <laughs> Betty leaves the farm, that's where she kind of comes alive. There's two- two short parts where like she leaves the farm and that's where she comes alive and then when she comes back John notes that like oh I want to see her like so happy and free again and then when she gets back to the farm she's immediately just kind of like bored with life it's and like a monotonous and actual just... evil structure it reminds yeah. me you know who should have directed this is Toby Hooper this is like the Mangler or the apartment or Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is what this is, is he should yeah. have now I'm in love with this idea I just had of Toby Hooper <laughs> directing it. Like I could just Sorry to interrupt. so well written like visually I could see like every character and like every angle of anything happening in the in the whatever she was storytelling. It was just so cinematically written, I thought. 
I love how she she describes him in the dream as flying like Superman. Did either of you see him in like a Superman? Yes. Oh, 100%. Yes. (laughs) Just letting free the chickens or whatever he was doing in that dream sequence. It's also very bizarre to put the dream sequence in. Like, no, none of the other stories had that kind of like fantasy element to them, per se. And I was just like, oh. It's interesting, too, with this one. If you've read a lot of Highsmith, you know, you know, she was a, 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 a lesbian who was closeted for a large part of her life. She doesn't, she almost never writes women characters that she clearly identifies with. She writes male characters frequently, like the criminals in the heart of her story are clearly Highsmith stand-ins. And in this story, I really felt like John was the Highsmith stand-in, that he really was a guy who came in and I think looked at this whole world and was like, this is wrong and sort of exploring. That's why it has the fantasy sequences. I think she's inside his head in the way that she gets inside a lot of her, her male protagonists that she identifies with. And also his sort of his, his lust for like an older proper woman who's being crushed by like patriarchal systems. That's the kind of chick she went after for a lot in her life too. You know, uh, which is, uh, I think also, you know, it reads that way. Like she does understand what's hot about that relationship too. Also, I think of that sort of like, baby, you're living your life all wrong. You need me to show you how to live, young lady. Come away with me, you know? I love how this one too subverts the classic kind of crime setup, even though it, I don't think we can give the, chalk this one up to the animals, right? I mean, it's like the wife who sets him up and, you know, basically murders him. Uh, but even after that, you know, when he's like, oh, my God, now what do we got to do? And she's like, eh, whatever. It's easy to explain. Who cares? <laughs> she's just like, he was drunk. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Covering up the crime is not an issue. Uh, probably because of the presence of all the poultry. Uh, it really made me think of Flannery O'Connor a lot more than oh. a classic crime story, especially that ending, which is so much like the ending of The Comforts of Home with the sheriff walking on the two characters saying, well, he stopped him right before they embraced each other passionately you know um but i love that about it i love that it has uh that that already at the beginning there's kind of this dehumanizing of the characters where she's talking about her daughter being in summer school and she says like oh they make these awful clay ashtrays and you've got to praise them when they bring them (laughs) home you know and, and everything just being so uh immediately just off for these characters um that they're kind of create their own artificial light, you know, like you said, with the parrots, the insane parrots in the cover uh, with the chickens, they have a light routine where, you know, they make them think that the day is longer. So they'll produce more eggs. Uh, and the way that they've been affected by this battery farming is that they themselves are creating this unnatural routine that they're following that gets shattered with the death of the girl. So it's a great parallel. So I, yeah, I love the story. Yeah. I also I love how funny. the description of where, because the entire time John is being, uh, hor- is horrified by the sound of these chickens and just this mm-hmm. combined horrible sound that they make coming from the factory and when they've been released he says they sound like an orchestra mm-hmm. that's a beautiful description there yeah I really like the the part where the chickens at the end them just kind of watching these chickens these new released animals into their freedom it reminded me also of like I've seen videos of like cows that have gone from like farm like kind of factory you know like kind of factory farming where they're not allowed to move around they're just getting sucked all day long for milk and stuff like that like 
and then people let them loose onto like open fields and the joy that you see on cows on the cows like they kind of take cautious steps and then all of a sudden they're jumping for joy like literally jumping for joy and like running and doing all this stuff and it, it like to me the chickens were doing the same thing like they had their moments of like i don't know how to walk but they, they also, don't know what grass is but they like it is the one but they like it and yeah. they can look up and they're like oh my god there's the actual sun i've never seen the actual sun and there's this this moment of beauty for like this prisoner release of these animals that's it was it, it was so nice <laughs> you know what the ending just... reminded me of oh is the end of ending of people under the stairs where the people <laughs> under the stairs get released and they tear the bad guys apart and then they're just out on the street seeing the yeah. sun for the first time these sort of like sebastian bach looking zombie fuckers exactly <laughs> what were you gonna say john i was just gonna say one other thing to mention is that because the woman's named helen which is the name of the female tourist in the uh, rat story for just a brief moment there. I was like, Oh, it'd be awesome if those characters came back and we had like a <laughs> high Smith animal verse going on here. You know? <laughs> These small characters from this one story are now the main characters, but then obviously it became obvious that it's completely different characters. John, when am I playing this clip for Wendy? When are we doing After that? she does her, uh, her dessert. Oh, okay. Oh, well, my dessert is going to be really quick because it's kind of silly. Uh, but my dessert, I figured if you're watching or if you read this short story all about chicken farming and factory farming, why not dessert it with Chicken Run? Oh, that's a great <laughs> one, though. Yeah. I love this selection. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the animated uh, animated movie um, by the same people that do like Wallace and Gromit and everything. And like, uh, it's all about animal, like chickens trying to escape their farm. <laughs> Because they know that the the farmer wants them for dinner, so they go off on an adventure. Warning: It does have Mel Gibson in it, but you know sometimes you can't help life, and uh, <laughs> maybe you can't really tell it's his voice anyway. I don't know. Yeah, just Mel, pretend Mel it's, Gibson uh, without it's, the gorgeousness. It's, yeah, it's a lose lose for everybody. No, just pretend it's a it's some celebrity voice impersonator doing a Mel Gibson impression. Exactly. Just pretend it's that it's Daryl Hammond doing I that voice actually getting any money from this move i hope he didn't get any movie i mean still not getting residuals or anything for this movie but yeah. he's rich and there's nothing you can do about it it'll be fine if he well, gets 35 cents from you watching chicken run wendy it'll be okay <laughs> people still put him in movies so what am i gonna do <laughs> people know he's an asshole and keep giving him work it's classic yes but he's about. very handsome have you thought about that I have thought, actually, Doesn't. I have thought about that. <laughs> like, it sucks that he's so handsome and he's such a fucking asshole. <laughs> it is. It's not fair. It's, it's a real totally ripoff. not fair. No, that's, that's the thing I talk about all the time is like, there are so few real fucking movie stars, like people that are like both gorgeous and talented and able to command the screen. And he's one of them and there's not many of them. And then he's this fucking piece of shit. You know, it's just, what a goddamn ripoff. Yeah. God, why did you do this, God? <laughs> That's just forsaking you. for you. Well, Wendy, I uh, I got a little gift for you here. It really is a gift. I, I <laughs> was hoping, I was hoping, <laughs> no, no, we'll not make you cry. Quite the opposite. I hope uh, this makes you cry. I, I, I wasn't sure if you're aware of this or not. I myself was not aware of this until a week ago. And I'm, since you didn't bring it up, I'm assuming you don't. Day of Reckoning was adapted in 1990 
for a wow. anthology series called Chillers, which was all Highsmith story adaptations. It was one of the last things directed by Sam Fuller of Shut all up. people. Sam Fuller did it. Uh, Anthony Perkins animals. hosted the series. Uh, you need to watch it as soon as you can. Oh. I don't want to say too much except that it would be perfect for Spader Saturdays, <laughs> it's, um, which is the show that Ed, Wendy hosts on uh, Twitch. Uh, it's just amazing. What we are going to do here, though, I've asked Chris to cue up the end credit song to play for you real quick. Oh, the end credit song. I've had this Ooh. in my head for a week. And I love end credit songs. This you've got to yeah. hear it to believe it. Steal yourself to cry a little bit, Wendy. Set. What in the world? It's it's incredible. And this is playing over a shot, a close-up of a uh, still of a chicken. It's so horrifying without any kind of control. <laughs> Muppetish. I just picture a million like the Camilla and Camilla's, the Camilla's like singing along, <laughs> and it's Gonzo. I hope I've convinced you to watch this as soon as you can. It's on, it's on YouTube. It. Where it's did on you YouTube. Do it? It's on YouTube. Oh, it's on YouTube? Yeah. Okay, good. Very accessible, 40 minutes long. It's uh, it's like insane people made it. Is what, that's all I'll say about it. It's it's amazing. Very faithful okay, to the so story. Is the whole well. thing, like the Chillers anthology is 40 minutes long or Day of Reckoning is 40 Day of Reckoning. Day of Reckoning. Each episode's oh. 40 minutes long. And yeah. it's got like bookends hosted by Anthony Perkins on, on the front and start of it. And he reads he reads a poem at the end too, just to keep with the poetry theme of it. He does. Although John's would be a much better selection than the yeah, one. Yeah, it's a picked. weird it's a weird selection to end it with. I don't really know what they were thinking, but <laughs> oh I've said God. too much. Watch it. I have to look this up. <laughs> look it up on YouTube. Um, this has been great, guys. Let's should we go through the other stories we didn't mention real quick, just to say? Yeah, why not? Sure, things about them. We talked a little bit about there. I was stuck with Bubsy about Baron the dog, who is obsessed with uh, Marion, his former master's friend who is always so nice to him. But uh, this asshole Bubsy just won't won't let him go for some reason. Yeah, see, it feels like petty. Bubsy feels motivated by pettiness and he doesn't like walking him, doesn't like feeding him properly, none of that. And so at one point, uh, Baron, who's this lovely show dog who has like a portrait of him in the living room and all of these different things goes after uh, Bubsy's uh, uh, breathing tubes for an apparatus he has to use while sleeping. Sounds like he has some kind of sleep apnea emphysema variation. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, a lot is made of like his master was like a very popular guy. People loved him. He uh, was a writer, right? Yeah, playwright or something like that. Yeah. yeah. He wrote, yes. uh, and, that and that Bubsy has an inferiority complex and that the only reason he's keeping Baron around is to channel that that coolness right that he like yeah. he doesn't actually care about caring about Baron or treating him like uh, a dog you know he just wants to have him around because 
something about it, you know, maintains that coolness that, you know, that he is missing now that the other guy has died. Yeah. I can't, just looking, I pulled up the table of contents. I can't believe we didn't talk about these three stories that we haven't mentioned yet. The, the, The only three that we didn't talk about at all were Eddie and the Monkey Robberies, Hamsters versus Webster's, and Harry a ferret. And uh, those are three of the most remarkably weird ones in this thing. Eddie and the Monkey Robberies is about a monkey that has been a little capuchin monkey who's been trained to break into apartments on behalf of Rose and Jane. Jane is like a hardened criminal and Rose seems like a little bit of like a uh, kid who's who's up for getting into trouble, seems like a hippie type. And they've been given uh, Eddie, who is the, the monkey, Eddie Monkey, you know, take me home tonight, Eddie Monkey. Um, he was like an organ grinder's monkey previously. Yes. And they were given him and they go to do a particularly uh, big house and they make Eddie go down a chimney, which he really does not like doing. And after he does it, he gets inside. He can't figure out how to unlock the doors. Uh, so uh, Rose, who's the more sensitive to two, breaks the window, goes back to Jane's house. And Rose Jane decides. just abandons them. Yeah, just, just leaves, leaves them there. Uh, Rose decides, I can't have any more to do with, uh, with, with these robberies. I got I to gotta get out of here. And I'll tell the guy that I got the monkey from uh, to come back and pick him up from Jane. And in the meantime, Jane like loses her shit on this monkey. And there's like an extended action fight scene around this apartment in which this poor little monkey, who seems like a really nice guy, Eddie is a, is a likable dude. Uh, he's sort of one of the more neutral animals in the story who's neither like, you know, good nor bad. He just seems like he's, he's up for being a monkey, up for getting along. And uh, don't worry, he kills Jane. Don't worry, he, she falls underneath a like, a like a bedspread comforter type thing and he beats the hell out of her with a conch shell and she's so surprised that she has a heart attack and dies. Uh, the original owner of the monkey comes to Jane's house, figures out what happened, takes Eddie, wipes his fingernails down, and they get the hell out of there. It's a uh, it's a and very enjoyable. Wipes down the murder weapons too. Wipes down the. I don't know. Do monkeys leave fingerprints? I don't know, but like he he wipes off the conch shell and the knife that that Eddie had stabbed her a few times with. <laughs> it'd be I. It'd be amazing if they were like, wait, we've got these prints on file already. You know those robberies we've been tracking. I think this monkey also did the, what's the name of the La, La Cosa, whatever the mansion's called. You know, oh, yeah. They also, this monkey also did the La Cosa job, you know. <laughs> I enjoy this one as kind of a funny inverse of um, Murders of the Rue Morgue, you know. Yeah. It even involves the chimney, you know, with the monkey coming down the chimney and then a, a, a murder happens by the monkey. But it's also very phenomenon-esque, I think, you know, I imagined. The poor monkey from that getting vengeance for uh, Donald Pleasance's death with the razor blade. <laughs> I had a terrible feeling, even though it's late in the book, I was like, this poor monkey's going to die in the chimney. Like chimneys are so small in real life. They're like the size of a fist, you know, like they're very small. And I was like, this monkey's going to die in the chimney. And well, I'm glad it didn't. I didn't think it was going to die in the chimney. Although I thought it was going to maybe break a leg or something like that, because they talked about how this was like, you know, like it was on the third floor or something like that, where the monkey has only done it from first floor. 
ground yeah. floor they chimneys. say it's a really long chimney yeah so i thought it was gonna like break its leg or something like that so i was very happy that it all it got was sooty also what is this cab driver scene in his life that he's like <laughs> is that a monkey <laughs> i love the detail though of she comes out holding the $30 and the cab driver goes, it was 27 and they note, but the cab driver didn't have a meter. Like the cab driver just lists the exact amount to get all of her money on the spot when she comes out with the three $10 bills. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, the next one we did not talk about was hamsters versus Webster's. Wendy, would you like to describe that one? I really like, I liked this one because it was just so batshit bonkers. It sounds like some Nickelodeon movie or something. <laughs> it was it's so insane. bizarre. It was totally crazy. So you have this little child. Um, he's, well, there's a family from Philadelphia and the dad has a heart attack. And the doctor's like, you guys got to take care. Like you got to cut down on work, cut out smoking, move to the country. He's 37 years old. He's had a heart attack. So he yeah. needs to change his life. So the family moves out there and eventually, um, oh, the dad sells pools. That's a keynote. Um, but the family eventually gets a dog and then the son sees a couple of the fam. There's a hutch in the backyard. Mr. That- Johnson is the dog. Mr. I know. I love that name. Mr. Johnson for the dog. <laughs> so, so good. Such a great name for a dog. Um, there's a hutch in the back, but the mom doesn't want bunnies because they produce too much. So when they're in the pet store getting dog food and getting this puppy, um, the son spots a couple of hamsters. And so he then convinces the mom to buy the hamsters and they take them home. The boy becomes an expert about hamsters, reads all about the hamsters and encyclopedia. Um, and then uh, reads about the reproductive cycle. And um, they're in the genre of bunnies where they just pump out those babies like nothing, just like rats. Um, and so the his hamsters have babies and then he just gets this bond with hamsters. So then like his friends, I mean, when his first, the first friend was like, hey, do you want these hamsters? I was like, oh, he's giving away some killer hamsters. Those hamsters are going to like <laughs> gnaw on somebody. That was immediately what I thought was going to, what the story was going to go for was that he the whole got town is murdered by hamsters. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I was love that go- character though, because that little boy is so ominous. He's like, take the hamsters my mom doesn't want us to have them anymore yeah what the fuck is up with these hamsters he's like my mom doesn't want us to have these anymore and my dad's afraid to drown them and i was like what oh my god like what are you talking about um which side note my family did have hamsters when i was young and we also had a pool and my hamsters one by one committed suicide in the pool because they all got out of the cage one by one went to the pool to get a drink and then the next morning we would find them floating around so yeah r.i.p those nine hamsters or however many we had i had Um, i had a gerbil that chewed open his water bottle and drowned himself in his plastic cage because yeah he like chewed on the plastic on the side of it and all of the water came out and filled up the cage and he by the time i found water bottle it was just water it was like a liter of water for a gerbil and it it filled it up and he it's not that he drowned in it he got so cold he died of hypothermia or something oh poor baby it was horrible elmo lagrange 
a likely story, Chris. That was that Turbo's name. A likely story. I don't believe a word of it. (laughs) You're right. My cat might have done it. (laughs) Uh, But back to the Webster's versus hamsters or hamsters versus Webster's as the story is actually called. Um, The kid starts taking in all the school's problem hamsters, apparently. (laughs) The school has all the students of the school have hamsters, apparently. And they all keep reproducing. So the kid keeps taking them in and then just not putting them in the hutch, but letting them out into the garden and um, hamsters burrow. So they're kind of like moles in that way. Six feet deep and then little chambers where they store their grain. I learned so much about hamsters. I did too, actually. I was like, (laughs) I had no idea that hamsters did any of the stuff that was written about in this short story. I was like, oh, okay. Um, but it's all like commit murder. You didn't know they were capable of killing a man. <laughs> Listen, this taking down the fire department. Self-defense, all right? Like you've come, true. For, come for you. It's self-defense. Um, but eventually the dad gets a pool put in and discovers that their backyard is basically nothing but hamster burrows and maze it's like a labyrinth of it's a honeycomb under there it's a honeycomb that's exactly it i finds out by breaking his leg falling through the ground (laughs) yeah and the dad steps poorly at one point and falls into one of these honeycombs and sprains his ankle or breaks it one of the two um, and then the dad gets on the war path and wants to smoke all these hamsters out from their hiding holes. And the little child is, you mess with his hamsters and he's going to want you dead anyway. So the <laughs> little child, <laughs> the dad is on a war path. Um, it eventually goes bad. And then the kid sits back and lets his dad get eaten to death by yeah he successfully smokes out these hamsters which then tear the flesh from his body and he's got a weak heart remember so he he dies of yeah yeah, falls down the firefighters come because so much smoke has gone into their garden area that people neighbors have probably called the i guess fire department and they come and the fire department tries to rescue him. One fighter fire can't do it because he's also getting bitten by hamster. So another guy has to come out. I pictured uh, when Pee Wee Herman runs into the pet store and comes out covered with the snakes. That That's what that firefighter was like. Or uh, somebody save the wee turtles and coming out with the turtles <laughs> all over him. That's what I pictured that firefighter is like. I'm covered in goddamn hamsters here. Or Pee Wee Herman with his snakes. I uh, love the little detail too of like the one firefighter like there he's just like nobody's gonna believe this story this is a great story <laughs> like the firefighter is so excited that this place is just overrun with hamsters it's i also awesome. love the uh the kid's point of view too when the firefighter showed up his dad's getting killed by hamsters and his mom is fainted and he sees the firefighter and he's like damn that dude's helmet rules <laughs> yeah. it's like, also a very feral climax wendy you know, yes. where the people keep arriving, like the, the cops arrive in the car and they're like, don't get out of the car. And then all the cats <laughs> attack them. <laughs> this is her most classic, you know, sort of animal attack story of this collection. You know, this is the one you can it, see being made by Roger Corman in 1976 yes. or whatever. But the son, the, the 
finale is is he's like i'm sad my dad is dead he was a good dad but to be fair he fucking had it coming that's that's the kids and the in the final line oh yeah he writes because he presents it as a fictionalized no 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 that's 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 the that's the ferret you're right this final line that is the ferret wait once more larry fought against tears as he released this pair that he loved the best he's letting uh pirate gloria go right yeah his favorite hamsters once more larry fought tears as he released this pair that he loved the best but he did hold back the tears and he felt that he was at last becoming a man. It's like don't, fucking insanity. <laughs> Larry, just let your tears go. Don't, don't go into that toxic, toxic masculinity. Well, it's, it's, he's, I've become a man. I let the hamsters that killed my father go. <laughs> I it's did funny. not seek revenge. I am it's funny that I got those uh, endings mixed up between this and the next story, Harry Ferret, because... That's another one about a guy who thinks he's a young boy who's becoming a man, going from 14 to 15, yeah. and thinks he's ready for the responsibility of getting this uh, ferret. Although this kid's this an ferret. incredible fucking dickhead. He's yeah, a rich kid, piece kid. of shit. I liked Harry. I liked the ferret, but yeah. I hated the kid. I was like, you little turd. <laughs> yeah. John, what's the plot of this one? We got uh, a rich, rich French kid in a palatial estate. Step one. Yeah. <laughs> He's unlikable from the beginning. He thinks that he's turned 15. He's a thinks his balls have dropped and he's a fucking man now and brings this ferret home, even though nobody's excited for the ferret to be there. Won't listen to his mom who asked him to keep the ferrets in the cage in the garden, brings it inside, does whatever the fuck he wants because he's a spoiled kid and uh, feeds the feeds Harry raw meat and blood because he heard ferrets like that. And for some reason, Harry then decides to bite the help, bite the butler, uh, which uh, who's rat, very you know, old. He's very he's described as being and is terrified of this ferret. Apparently, Antoine, uh, poor Antoine, um, decides to do away with Harry, either to set him free in the woods or something worse. Uh, and Harry isn't having it apparently because the kid f- uh, comes upon a scene of. Harry attacking poor Antoine. Yeah. He's back. Harry is on this guy like the bravest rat in Venice on a baby. You know what I'm saying? Eyes gouged out. Yeah. Attacking the eyes, blood from the eyes, going for the throat, and uh, just all the vulnerable spots. And basically, this piece of shit kid just stands there and watches this man be murdered by a ferret eaten to death by a ferret. He's American psycho. Like, he's he's a little serial killer. Because then he then buries the help alive because he doesn't want Harry to get in trouble. Aids and abets a ferret. The guy's yeah. dead. Yeah, he buries. Oh, not the alive. not yeah. alive. He buries the body. Tells yeah. the police we saw him going for the bus. Yeah, and uh, and then writes a, a story about it, which he shares with a friend. And he tells the friend, "I tell you, it's all true." And the friend is like, "Yeah, right." But that's a good story. <laughs> Yeah, the most flimsy like cover up of a crime. He says, "Oh, he told me he was going to be gone for a few days. He was going to go into town in that direction." <laughs> yeah. And somehow these idiot cops are like, "Okay, let's go check in that direction." And if he's not there, what are we going to do? Well, what are the cops going to think? <laughs> Bet that ferret killed him. Yeah, that would That's... be the last thing. I mean, if I, they, I mean, the kid would have gotten blamed, obviously, but yeah. Just, I hated that the kid got the like he's just this rich little snob that didn't know that he was buying this murderous ferret 
Like he did the fair wasn't even for sale. He just went into the shop, saw him, and was like, "Here's 150 bucks. Can I have them?" And the owner's I'm like, "He bites my people. hunting ferret, but okay." Oh uh, yeah, Wendy. Right, are, like, I, this is what I didn't know because I've been around ferrets before, and they all seem nice. Are ferrets little murder machines like this? Is this a common? I've been around ferrets. They're they're stinky as hell. They're nasty smelling creatures. But they've always been nice that I've seen. Do they? But are they? Are they predators? Are they like used for moling and stuff? I didn't. I didn't. Know I didn't that. know that. But I, I mean, I could see it. I'm just curious about yeah, the, I, I've the never... factual parts of this story and how fanciful it is. How much character assassination? That ferret expert is a guest. <laughs> to, 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 how I mean, much I've character never... assassination is here? Yeah, I've never read up on ferrets, but all of her other stories were pretty factual about the animal stuff. At least, yeah. like from what I know of the the animals that she was talking about, they're all pretty pretty on point. So I would assume that yes ferrets can go hunting for rabbits sure you know one of the other things i liked about this story she doesn't spend a lot of time describing the animals in depth what they look like but in this story she goes out of her way to make harry sound adorable she (laughs) takes every opportunity to make harry sound as cute as a button and i think it's so you can't hate harry and be angry at harry I think that that's part of what she's doing is that that she leans into the almost like Disney-esque cuteness of, of Harry, the murderous ferret, to undermine how horrifying it is. This is the most horrifying one to me. Just so much of the descriptions are really like painful. It sounds painful to get bitten by Harry out of nowhere. Yeah, I feel like a ferret bite would be like a, a rat bite kind of thing where it's just like... Yeah, and unlike the rat story, like she describes what's happening in this one, and it's very prolonged attack by this ferret. So it's definitely upsetting. That ferret's killing Antoine. Yes, I can't do anything about it. Oh, look. Okay, so I just went on Wikipedia real quick while you guys were chatting. Uh, Ferrets, (laughs) they are still used for hunting. It's called podcasting, not chatting, Wendy. They are still used for hunting rabbits in some parts of the world, but increasingly they are kept only as pets. So they are used for hunting rabbits, like the guy said in the beginning. So they are little beasts. Assassins. They are tiny assassins. Tiny, fuzzy, cute little assassins. Uh, It did make me go, how has anybody ever kept a ferret in their house? Every single description part of that makes it sound like this would be the worst pet in the entire world, ferrets. so cute, though. If they weren't so smelly, they'd be adorable. But they're so smelly. Yeah. Are you sure it wasn't just the kind of person who owns ferrets that smells? Are you sure that's not what you were smelling? The no, ferret it was, owner. It was ferret owner. It wasn't the person. The, there was lovely lady friends of mine have owned ferrets, and you can smell the ferret where the ferret lives and where the ferret doesn't really go into. <laughs> there was a definite odor distinction between rooms. Was this in Florida? Tell the truth. It was in Florida. 100% of course, it was. was. <laughs> I knew it. My entire experience with ferrets is a kindergarten cop. So. <laughs> So, so yeah, we mentioned Goat Ride just a little bit, but as you've already said, it's kind of a disappointing ending. There's not much to talk about. Let's not end on a negative. No, unless when do you disagree with uh, that assessment? I 
I'll be honest. I didn't get it. That was the one story that I didn't finish reading. Okay. That was... so I don't even know what it is. So I ended on the ferret story. <laughs> so, same same as, same as Samson. He, he gets away eventually. He kills his owner, gets away, goes to another farm. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. it is, it is a little recycled. It is a little recycled from some of the earlier stuff. Um, so just any last thoughts on this uh, anthology of work by Highsmith? Um, was the chicken story your favorite one, Wendy? Or just the one that you felt like you wanted to talk about? Um, it was kind of, it's hard to pick a favorite, I feel like, because I feel like all of them had their own little great part. I mean, even like I thought probably it was my favorite, but as we've sat here discussing all the different stories, I'm like, oh yeah, that part was really great. Okay, yeah, that part was really great too. So I feel like it's hard to say which one is a favorite because I think that they are all, enjoyable like short stories um to me i thought it was a really great read although it is a hard read as an animal lover yeah like it's it is a hard read because the animals do go through a lot of abuse but on the flip side of that then there's a lot of like such great shocking deaths and stuff like i really a lot of the time my face was just like or I'd be like, oh, like I'd make like a noise reading this because like the descriptions were so visual and visceral of some of the kills that especially like the worst the person treated the animal. Usually I feel like the worst the description. So like, uh, yeah, so it was hard reading about all the because all these things are things that people do to animals and it's so frustrating and you're like, oh, God, if life was perfect this is how like those people would end up but usually they don't end up like this killed but, by their own camel as a crowd cheers and laughs yeah, exactly <laughs> like that ain't happening but like if life was good that's what happened but sadly there are camels that are gonna just like yeah get ridden know, to death you know yeah like like die of thirst and like there's like pigs that are gonna get like probably beaten you know because... that's actually in uh, by the pyramids of giza they ride the camels so hard for the tourists that when they die they just leave them there and set them on fire so when you go to giza there's always burning camels around it oh okay. yeah I didn't horrifying well, maybe yeah. this is the right time to ask you coming off of this book, which of these two statements would you say is more true, Wendy? Uh, you love animals more or you hate people more? Oh, that's hard. Truly hate people. That's because I've also worked in retail for like 20 years. So I hate people. I love animals more probably than hating people. I'm going to go out on a limb because there are some nice people out there in the world. And I, but I truly love like all animals. I think they're so great. I, I would agree with that. That's my experience of you. It's because yes. you're social. There's plenty of people you like. You're yeah. just, it's just the people you hate. You, you are merciless is how, what I would describe. You know, it's always funny. I always, I always think back to the time in my life when I was, younger and like people used to complain about how nice I was and I'm like if the people that knew me now would meet 20 year old Wendy they'd be like who is that because <laughs> I used to be so nice everyone knows it's Wendy exactly that's what I'll say about you from now on that Wendy Mays she'd eat the face off the baby <laughs> she used to be so nice but I think this book is more about hating people <laughs> yes 
Yes, it's definitely not. Although there's 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 a real, I think it's trying to meet animals on its own terms. I think it's trying to not be sentimental animal stories. I think it's trying to present animals as they are on their own terms rather than contort them into human things, you know, that, that it really is trying to approach animals as uh, understand them in the context of how they approach the world and interact with the Except world. Except maybe the cockroach story, which is the closest yes. we're going to get to a Patricia Highsmith Pixar movie. I think. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, a fancy cockroach. Yeah. All the animals in here are, are animals. It's not, none of them have been Disneyfied except for the cockroach to have their own kind of like human qualities and personalities and stuff like that. Like mm -hmm. they're all at the basis have the animal that they are qualities put on them. Yeah. So like the cat is aloof. The cat is just like, I just want to sleep and this asshole is such an asshole. And like, I just don't like him. He yeah. is messing up with the routine of my life and what the fuck. <laughs> so but also just the way she guides it through the thought process of it smells something that attracts its attention. There's a noise that makes it afraid. It yeah. wanders down here. It gets tired and sleep and doesn't have any sense of time. That's one of the things I love in the monkey robbery story is how time passes according to the monkey's sense of it. And then you realize it's hours later, it's nighttime or it's day, you know, that, that the monkey's sense of the world uh, is interesting to think about. Oh, I bet monkeys don't worry about what fucking time it is ever. No, you know? I like the part where she, like the monkey clearly didn't quite know what was happening, but it could smell the blood and that's what scared it. Yeah. Like when, when she's already dead and he just can smell so much blood and he's like, I don't like this. I'm going to go over here and take a nap. I love her descriptions of the monkey where like he flings the, he gets the string beans out of the fridge and then just drops them on the ground to get up on the couch. And that's such a perfect description mm -hmm. of how monkeys move around that they'll carry some food with it and then just drop it to do something else. Yeah, you know, like, it's oh, swinging God, the knife at her and then just throws it away for some reason, you know? There's yeah. a line about Baron where it says he, re he realized he was in the presence of something dead, you know, after he's killed yeah. Busby. I like that a lot. I, I've dissected call of the wild quite a bit jack london's book just to get an idea of how to write animals you know and you know like how does an animal know what a sled is you can't say buck looked at the sled can you because buck doesn't know what's a sled but i think the highsmith doesn't give a shit about that she's like the, the rat saw the gondola and jumped on it you know yeah i kind of appreciate that like you know what the fuck i'm talking to you i'm not talking to a i'm not telling the story to a yeah. rat you know although the rat this rat gondola takes a gondola ride sorry what <laughs> i don't think it knew where it was going it was just like here's a way to for me to yeah. travel, take me somewhere. <laughs> right. Because he's an adventurous rat. That's for certain. I think by the end, he knew that if he hopped on the gun, he was going back to a familiar place. He's like, oh, I'm going to go over here. Yeah. I think we that's can all true. learn a lot from that rat. We could. <laughs> There's a lot to be learned in that story. John, what was your favorite story in it? The one you picked? I do like Truffle Season a lot. I, I, I like all the three that we talked about very much, but. Like Wendy, you know, listening, remembering little details of all the stories um, made me realize there's something great about all of them. And Chorus Girl is a really beautiful, yeah, very sad story very by itself. Sad. Especially with thinking about, you know, this is Patricia Highsmith, who, you know, didn't usually, you know, get into sentimental sort of yeah. deeply kind of affecting things like this. It's uh, It's a rarity. So I kind of like reading that from her. 
And again, appreciate that she kind of was like, let's get that out of the way and then we'll move on to some more fun stuff like rats eating babies' faces. <laughs> I, I, I agree that the three we talked about and then Chorus Girl, the, those are, I think, the four standout ones in it to me. Well, Wendy, thank you for coming on our show. You are an utter delight at all times. You are really fun to talk with as opposed to our other guests. <laughs> No, it's always great. And it's always true. Why do we have anyone on but Wendy? Come on. (laughs) I agree with that. I haven't talked to you guys. I haven't talked to you guys in so long. I know. I come and I watch the Spader days sometimes, but I I don't really comment. Yeah. If it's one I haven't seen too many times, I'll I'll come, I'll pop in and watch it. Or if it's a particularly Richard Grieco filled movie, I'll stop in to watch it. (laughs) And, And since Wendy, there's been no announcement yet about theaters reopening trivia night is still very much online can you just tell people who haven't uh, who might want to jump in and uh, check it out the best place to go to find out about it on tuesday nights at 8 30 yeah i would say the best place to find out about it is if you have facebook you can go to movie trivia nerds um that group on facebook and i always post um an event link on there um or if you follow me on twitter at meow maze um i i do a link that gives um a way to play trivia but yeah every tuesday right now um while things are still shut down every tuesday at 8 30 p.m eastern time is when we do our movie trivia it's four rounds of very hard trivia um and uh next week we're going to be doing i don't know when this is coming out but it doesn't really matter but next week for john because i know he comes all the time uh is our year anniversary of doing movie trivia online for a whole year without a break so i'm going mentally crazy doing that um but yeah so we have some fun things lined up for our year anniversary it should be a lot of fun this is great i'm excited just to find out what what those things are (laughs) it's gonna be funny thank you very much wendy for doing the show john always nice talking to you as well have a good night everyone and take care of your animals be good to animals and uh, why wouldn't you Watch the shadows for a three and a half footed rat that's coming to either bring joy to your life and understanding of yourself like a tourist or to get revenge. He was an unnamed rat. He didn't have a name. He didn't have a name? Okay. He didn't. No. no, no slave name like the other animals. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> if he had a name, take- he just would have thrown it off like a shackle and devoured it. And do not take any stray pigs truffle hunting, for the love of God.